Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Okay, so if you have your notes, go ahead and get those out. And um, we finished yesterday talking about missionary strategy and culture and contextualization and, you know, being a missionary at heart, regardless of where I live, um, I just feel the need to try and adapt and connect with the people where I'm at. And so to try and make sure I connected with you all, I stayed up really late last night and I'm really tired. So I will pretend to have a bunch of energy if you will pretend to listen. Can we do that? And then, you know, we can, we can kind of get through this thing. Um, let me pray. And uh, we'll pray for the Mel's and we'll pray that God will teach us something. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for new beginnings. Thank you, Lord, that today, the first day of a new year, is just a reminder to us that really every day your mercies are brand new. And this is, this is that day. This is the day the Lord has made. And we'll rejoice and be glad in it. I pray that you'll do great things today. I pray that you will speak to our hearts. Thank you so much for the Mel's. Thank you for their faithfulness over all the years and the ways that you've proven yourself faithful in their lives and ministry and really pray for them and their needs in Egypt. What a wonderful opportunity to, to spread the light of the glory of your gospel to a place that is so dark and so desperately needs it. I pray you'd give them strength. I pray that you would work through all the details of their paperwork. I pray that their work visas and permits and, and, and all the things that would legitimize the legal status of their presence. These are tiny, tiny little things for you, Lord. So we ask you in Jesus' name to, to provide those things. Protect their health and their family so that they can just be available to help people hear physically and, of course, spiritually the truth of your word and to connect them with the people's hearts that you've already prepared, you know are ready to hear the truth. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. And for the time that we're gonna spend now studying, I pray God that you would also touch our hearts and our ears and you would help us to see and to hear and to understand and, and even apply, even consider that if Lord, each of us would just consider and pray this prayer, Lord, what, what would you have me to do that, th this will be a great morning. So we commit this to you and thank you in advance for what you're gonna do. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so yesterday we had a lot of practical observations and, and we're going to uh, continue with that theme. Today we're gonna talk about the missionary call. And without question, this is arguably the most misunderstood point for a lot of people. Um, when people talk about being called into foreign missions, it, it, it becomes very, very subjective. Um, I mean, what do you do with a guy who walks up to you and says, God told me, and then fill in the blank? I mean, it's hard as a pastor or a leader to determine, well, did God really tell that guy? I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't hear it, and I'm not sure if he heard. I don't know. How do I know? Is it possible? How can he know? How can that individual have confidence? How can we as a church have confidence? So people ask me all the time, how did you know God wanted you in Albania? And, and sadly, um, it's the same answer frequently that people who are young adults and single and seeking a mate ask you, how did you know that she was the woman you wanted to marry? And the typical answer you get back is, say it with me, you just know. Okay, so that all sounds real romantic and cool, but the truth is we, we need to put some handles on this thing. I mean, we gotta kinda, I mean, people in Christianity, you know, we get kinda spiritual, you know, beyond practical sense sometimes. And, and so we wanna, you know, we're sitting around expecting some miracle beam of light to shine down on us, you know, and 
It never does, and when it never does, then, you know, maybe, that, maybe that's handy. Maybe we like that as our excuse to not ever have to really answer the call because the call may be a lot more clear in black and white. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I want to start just by mentioning that, in my humble opinion, uh, in, in your Old Testament, there's really only one true categoric, categorically defined missionary in all the Old Testament, and that's Jonah. Now, I get it. Throughout the Bible, man, there's just tons of people who travel. There's tons of people that God sent to go different places for a variety of reasons. God certainly used them in different capacities. There's a lot of pictures and types of missionaries in the Bible. But if you consider the classic definition of a man who was called by God and sent to go to a foreign, pagan, heathen people with the express purpose of preaching a message of repentance to them, it's only Jonah. Jonah's the only guy. There's nobody else. Now, when I saw that, I began to ask myself, okay, so why is that? I mean, if the Old Testament is three-quarters of the volume of your scripture, why is there only one guy that would be specifically defined as what we consider and understand to be a foreign missionary? Could it be that that's by design? Is it possible that maybe in the greater scheme of things, comparatively speaking, there's actually only few that God really calls? Is it true maybe that God would intend that most, the vast majority of people stay home. These are some thoughts that I had. I mean, when I was viewing life, and again, I refer back to my experiences, when I was viewing life and seeing so many good men, missionaries, crash and burn out, I just began to wonder, did God really call them? And it's above my pay grade to make that determination. I don't know. But I began to wonder, and so... I wanted to kind of consider these things. So as I was thinking about this, I have a friend who coined a phrase and it caused me to think, and he says, you're only eight phone calls away from the Queen of England. And the idea is, is that if you called somebody you know and they called somebody they knew and they called somebody they, by the time you made eight phone calls, it's possible that the Queen's phone would ring. You know, everybody knows enough people and the people that you know know enough people Okay, so if you take that principle and apply it to missions, if we made the phone calls, evangelistically speaking, I mean, it just wouldn't take that long, would it, for the Word of God to get all around the world, would it? So if we really did that job, then God doesn't need to call anybody to go anywhere. But we don't really do that job. And most of the peoples of the world don't know the name of Jesus Christ, and just billions of people have no idea what it means to be saved. And so God does call people, certainly he does. And I know you were thinking, what, are we, what is he talking about? I, I want to try and set the stage for the importance of what this thing is when God calls, because we're going to walk through some categories here. Okay, so because everybody's not you know, just 100% hitting, you know, all the cylinders. I mean, we, we need to leverage the contacts we have for the gospel, but God certainly is calling people. And, and the first thing I want to remind you of is in the book of Ezekiel, you can turn there in Ezekiel chapter 3. I told you we'll hit this a few times before we're done. And um, Ezekiel's call in his particular life as a prophet is kind of interesting. So in Ezekiel chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse number 4. Ezekiel speaking, talking about the Lord, he says, and he said unto me, son of man, go, so God's sending him, get thee unto the house of Israel. And so he's not sent to a foreign peoples, as we'll see here. He's sent to his own people. But get thee unto the house of Israel and speak my words unto them, for thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language whose words thou canst not understand, Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee, but the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me, for all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. 
So in the context, Ezekiel clearly is not a foreign missionary. He's sent to his own people. But the, thing, the only thing I want us to see for now, we'll get back to this in a little bit. The only thing I want to see for now is, in verse number six in the middle it says, surely had I sent thee to them, the them being the people of a strange speech or a hard language. In other words, if I were to do that, Ezekiel, in other words, God certainly can and will do that with some people. There will be times when God will specifically call a man to leave his understanding of life and culture and language and peoples and go to a strange place with a strange speech and a hard language and a different culture because God has a plan and a need for that. And that was the case in Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh and they were just pagan idolaters and he went with a message of repentance for them. Certainly in the New Testament we see the classic example is in Acts chapter 13. If you're not aware of it, let me just begin reading in verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So for those of you that will sign up for my missions class in LFBI, we'll dive into Acts 13 a lot and get into a lot of detail of that. We're not going to do that today, but I do want you to understand that the context here is the church in Antioch. And if you've studied the book of Acts and you know a little bit about church history, you know that the church in Antioch really is the model New Testament church for what we ought to be following in our lives and ministries. It's not the church in Jerusalem, it's the church in Antioch. And, and what we see is that the Holy Spirit took men who were serving faithfully in positions of leadership, and he said, separate them and send them out. And when he did call them to do that, I want you to notice what he called them to do. He did not say, send them to this place. He didn't say, send them to this people, like he did with Jonah. He said, send them to this work. And if you've never learned this, and I know some of you already know this, but if you've never learned this, when the Holy Spirit calls a person, it's, we worry about geography. Lord, where will I go? Where would you want me to go? I hear the missionaries. I see the places. I, I stare at the map and pray. I do this and that. And I like this region of the world. I don't like this region. Who cares? What is the work that you are uniquely qualified to do that God needs to be done over here and he needs somebody to do it and you're willing to do it and he calls you to go do what you have been doing in a new place and oh, by the way, it requires a move. You have to relocate. Well, the location is incidental to the work. Who cares if you move somewhere if when you get there, you don't know what to do, right? You have to know what you're to do. So when God is calling a person, quit worrying about where and worry a whole lot more about what. Now, pragmatically and Allow me to say that I understand that God is not bound by our pragmatism or good sense of how we think things ought to be done. But, you know, he does do things decently and in order, and he's not a God of chaos. And there are some common sense principles that will help you in your decision-making process. And so it typically makes good sense for us to take the smallest cultural step possible when we relocate to our new place. So for example, if you're used to an urban environment, it makes sense that you would land in an urban center somewhere else because for the most part, a city's a city's a city all over the world. And if you're, you know, the outdoorsy country, you know, hunter, you know, knife in your teeth, dugout canoe, I don't know who you are, but if you are, go somewhere like that. I mean, it just makes sense to do that kind of a, look, at the end of the day, why would you say something like that? Can God call a city guy to go live in the jungle? Of course he can do that, and I'm not saying he's never done that. I'm just trying to say the cultural step and the new language and the new lifestyle, it's hard enough as it is. The more similarities that happen to work out that find you a place that kind of makes sense, the better it is for you then to just be able to focus on the work, which is really the call. 
that needs to be done. So let me take a minute and just, you know, pull back the curtain on my story a little bit. I told you yesterday a little bit about my salvation experience. And so I'm 21 years old. I had dropped out of college. I re-enrolled in Arkansas State University and heard the gospel presented to me for the very first time. Um, I moved back to Arkansas because I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago because at that point, when I was 21, my parents had already retired and moved to Arkansas. My dad got cancer. He was dying. I went to the school that was closest to their house at that time. And so the only reason I say all that is that from the time I was 18 years old, I went a semester at college and I went home to the community college and after one year I was done with college. So I'm 18 years old, my parents, I didn't move out, they moved out, I stayed, they left. <laughs> I came home and they were gone. No, they, they moved to Arkansas. So from the time I was 18, I, I've been on my own. I, I've been kind of living on my own for the bulk of my life. I mean, certainly my entire adult life. And I find myself constantly going to new places and doing new things alone. So when I moved to Arkansas, it was about a two hour drive from my parents' house. I moved into the dormitory all by myself. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends. It happened to be the first guy I met was a Christian who shared the gospel with me. It was awesome. Okay, so fast forward, I eventually graduate college and I finally get a job in the nick of time to start paying off my school loans and that happened to be in North Alabama. And so I moved to Decatur, Alabama. I've never been to Decatur, Alabama. I never had been to Jonesboro, Arkansas. So I moved to Decatur, Alabama all alone by myself and I find an apartment and I find, you know, I got a job, I found a church and, and it was a brand new thing and I had to start life all by myself, all alone. And then I started to learn and to grow and that's where I was trained in the scriptures and, and all of that and God called me now I'm 30 years old and he calls me to be a missionary to Albania and I went all alone with no wife and no family and no missionary team to a place that I'd never been before but for me it was just, the, it was just another move. I've been doing this all my life. I've been going to new places alone all my life. So when, if somebody hears my story and they say, wow, that's kind of bold, I mean... They kind of like just helicopter dropped you in this place all alone. I mean, that freaks me out. Well, yeah, but you've never done that. I've kind of done that all along. And so it wasn't that big of a deal for me. I was getting kind of bored in Alabama. I mean, it was just something to do. Okay, so in the, in the, in the work aspect, it's funny, Doug was up here yesterday talking about his experience in ministry in the, in the junior high. That was also my experience. I led the junior high ministry, and uh, it, it, oddly, you wouldn't think so. It was perfect training for beginning a ministry in Albania. No disrespect to Albanians. And, uh, but the junior high leadership trained me to take real Bible lessons and give the kids real information, but at a simplified level that they could really grasp. And the Albanians are coming out of an atheist background with zero Bible understanding. So it's not an intelligence issue, it's just an issue of they have no background whatsoever. So I had to take Bible teaching and, and present it at a level. Well, I've, I've been doing that for three and a half years in Alabama where, you know, 12 and 13 year olds were growing in the word of the Lord because I, I was learning that skill. So the work that I was doing and the type of life I was living matched where God called me to go. It wasn't that big of a cultural step. It, it made sense. And so, again, location is just kind of incidental. Let me continue. Okay, I want us to look in Romans chapter 15. This is referred to frequently and there's a good reason. So you're sitting here and you're a young adult and you're in your heart surrender to go serve the Lord wherever he would call you and you are anxiously waiting that phone call. I mean, you're waiting for, you know, the beam of light, you know, the clap of thunder. You're waiting for, you know, the glowing words on the screen to say this is the location. For, I mean, okay, Jeff, the work thing, got it. I really still want to know where, where, okay. Well, let's talk about that. Romans 15, starting in verse 18. Paul says, For I will dare not, or not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient, 
by word and deed. I, I, it's not part of the message, but it's very interesting, that verse, because frequently we do find ourselves boasting about what God's doing in everybody else's ministry. And that's got its place to praise the Lord with others. But man, we ought to have something to talk about what God is working in our lives. Amen. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout unto Illyricum, I fully preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul, in his own way, is attempting to just do what God said to do, and that's obey the Great Commission. That's take the word of God from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost. And at this stage of his life, this is the most utter he's ever been. And so that's what he's doing. Yea, so if I strive to preach the gospel, the key phrase here, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. So while Paul is taking God's word seriously and he's obeying the Great Commission and he's going to the uttermost, the key is in verse number 20 because Paul's call, his strategy is to go to a place that did not already have the gospel. He did not want to go to a place where Christ had already been named. He did not want to go to a place where there was already a foundation built that to build upon somebody else's foundation. There was too much world out there yet unreached. There were too many peoples out there who had never had one chance. Why continue to give the same peoples thousands of chances? And that's something for you to consider. Okay, well, how did he exactly determine that that's what God wanted? Because certainly, Jeff, you're not going to insinuate that everybody has to go where nobody's ever been because, I mean, logistically, how do we really do that? Okay, well, how about we just go back to what it says in Romans 15 and verse 21. How did you know, Paul? Well, as it is written, and then he goes and he quotes Isaiah 52, verse 15. So what's Paul doing? Paul's reading the Bible every morning like, you know, a good Christian ought to. And he's just reading through and he's serving the Lord and he's looking and he's praying, which is what you should be doing. And God illuminates this verse and he flashes it in his eyes and he's like, Paul, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the gospel to people who haven't before seen, where it's never been spoken of. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to understand it. So this is kind of criteria that we work with. And so if God is calling a man or a woman, if God is calling somebody... That somebody ought to be able to show me from the scriptures where and how God has called them. Because the scriptures are the only way that God really speaks. Now, I'm not saying he can't impress on your heart in the still small. Of course he can do that. But it will always be in, in coordination with and in conjunction with what the scriptures say. So when somebody comes to you and says, God told me, and what they're saying is in direct contradiction to the scriptures, you know what you can do with their opinion of what God told them. <laughs> File 13, right? So you don't, you don't, it doesn't matter. You can discern certain things that way. Now, I, I've been in the ministry long enough to also know that in churches like ours, where we passionately teach the scriptures and young people grow up understanding a lot of Bible, you know, the flesh is still there and the flesh is still sneaky and there is a huge temptation and we dealt with this a lot in our ministry for young people who know the word of God to yet still rest the scriptures to their own end. And they, listen, y'all are smart. You can get you a verse if you need one. Okay, so you want to go somewhere because this cute girl is there or whatever. I mean, you want to do something, but my pastor's pretty savvy and I'm going to need a verse Listen, it happens all the time. And by the way, we're not stupid about that. We know you're doing it. <laughs> and so you have to be careful. It is yet somewhat subjective, but there should be some safety guards. There should be some things that we should be able to look at. Okay. And so one of the things is, if you go back to Acts 13, is the Holy Spirit called Saul and Barnabas to go. Well, at the same time, it was confirmed by the church in the next couple of verses if we were to read on, it shows that the church sent them out as the agent of the Holy Spirit with flesh on. So if you're not exactly sure where you would use your gifting and your experience of work that you can do, well, why don't you consider, this is in your notes, preaching not where Christ was named. 
Why don't you consider that? I mean, if you're just not sure and you kind of don't care and you're willing and open to whatever, why don't you consider taking the gospel to where nobody's had the gospel? That'd be my recommendation. I mean, we have scriptural precedent for that, right? I mean, look, I, my friends from Alabama know. I mean, I, once upon a time, we joked about, I mean, I, I, I sort of volunteered for the job of the Holy Spirit once in my life, you know, kind of failed miserably at that. I, I all, you know, disclaimer, I, I get it. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I'm not trying to pretend like I know what you must do. But understand Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But if we look at the men in the Bible that are the main, the, the classically defined foreign missionaries, there's really only three. There's, of course, the Lord Jesus. There's the Apostle Paul and those that traveled with him, of course. But, and, and Jonah. Okay, by definition, all three of these guys take their message to some foreign people that had no clue of the message before they got there. All three of them, that's what they did. And so in each case, God just needed somebody who was willing to go and open their mouth and speak so that the peoples that had no idea, and again, God knows their hearts, many of them are interested. They just don't know where to go to find the answer that they can hear. And if throughout the New Testament witness, and it is throughout the New Testament witness, over and over and over again, the Bible tells us to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. Follow Paul. Follow over and over again. If Paul is our model and our example for ministry, Christian life, then we ought to at least consider the fact that his call to go where Christ was not previously named might roll into some application for us. So, it kind of begs the question, and you know, I know you're a little sleepy and I'm maybe gonna take advantage of the fact that you're not as lively this morning to throw this out there and hope I don't get attacked too hard. Right, let me do it this way. Do, do we need to keep sending Americans to Mexico? Or, okay, so forgive me for saying that. That's just an example. No, I, mean, I mean that. Listen, are there Mexicans that have no idea what they got? Of course there are. But somebody said there's more Puerto Ricans in New York City than there are in Puerto Rico. And there's probably more American missionaries in Mexico than there are Christians in America. I don't, there's just a lot. All I'm saying is, there are certainly people groups, of course, that have yet to hear. I get it, I do. But man, that ought, that ought to be something that drives us. I mean, are we, just, are we just traveling because we like international travel and let's just do it in Jesus' name? I mean, that's kind of cool. Okay, so in Albania, our kids went to a missionary kids' school. And um, so a lot of the missionaries sent their kids to this school and, and it so happened in Albania that there were a lot of missionaries from all over the world. And so our kids had friends, and I'm, I just jotted down a list, and I'm sure I probably missed some. I didn't ask my wife because she remembers better than I do. Um, there was like 15 Korean kids, uh, five Brazilians. There was kids from Hungary, Sweden, Great Britain, Canada, El Salvador, Honduras, and maybe some other places, which was awesome, by the way. It was a really cool, you know, United Nations in the missionary kids' school. So that meant that Brazilians had missionaries sent from Brazilian churches to Albania. Koreans had missionaries sent from Korean churches to Albania. That Hungarian missionaries were sent from Hungarian churches to Albania. Swedes, etc. So, it, do we need to send Americans to Brazil? I mean, if the Brazilians are sending missionaries out, should and if God should. Should the Brazilians be reaching the Brazilians? Of course. Should the Americans be reaching them? Of course. Again, I, I'm, I'm kind of hiding. I, don't shoot me, okay? I'm just, 
I'm just, I'm trying to get you to think. That's all I'm trying to do. Listen, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I, I think that's kind of weird. Why do we play musical chairs in missiology? Why, why do we just, everybody shift one to the right? And I don't know nothing about your life and language and culture, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead and try. And you don't really know nothing about mine, but go ahead and take my spot because we kind of want to travel and I want to see your, your mountains. I mean, how weird is that? I mean, we spent the last time talking about cultural contextualization and how we have to go through all this trouble so the people can hear it the way they can hear it. And we talk about training nationals and tr starting national churches and national pastors. Why? Because it's just smart. Because they can reach one another more effectively than we could ever reach them, of course. So what if everybody just stayed home? You say, this is a missionary conference. Why'd they invite him? <laughs> I know, I didn't know why either, but Sam said come. Okay, listen, this is an important conversation. And the reason it's an important conversation is because before you just sign up because it's just cool, it's just something sexy, it just sounds like it's fun. You really need to count the cost. We're going to get to that, maybe. Okay, let me move on. So we talked about this, I, I mentioned, so the next thing in your notes, so if you're, if you're keeping track, the importance of contextualization in ado adequately communicating the eternal truths of the gospel. That, that's kind of the idea I was just referring to. I mean, it's hard work to learn a foreign language well. Some languages are harder than others. All of them are hard if you're going to speak them well. It's way harder than to, and to learn their real lifestyle and culture. So Ezekiel stayed home. Okay, Israel was at a time when they were in great apostasy. There weren't very many Israelis clicking with the Lord. But Ezekiel was one. So what did God do? Well, you know what? Here's what I need to do. I need to send a Samaritan into Israel because there's not very many Jews that are really listening. No, there was an Ezekiel, and God called that Ezekiel to go get in the face of the rest of the Jews and say, y'all are messed up. And God said, they're going to be a hard-headed people, but I'm going to make your head harder than their head, and you're going to butt heads with them. So Ezekiel's the biblical butthead. Okay, so... God called him to do that. That was his mission. I relate to Ezekiel. I like Ezekiel. But certainly every country, well, many, certainly not every, but a vast majority, a lot of places in the world have an Ezekiel there, don't they? Certainly. Well, that's just something to think about. I mean, I can't, I cannot obviously dogmatically say that God won't call a man to go work where somebody else is working, that would be ridiculous. But I think I can dogmatically say that God will call a man where Christ has not been named, amen? That's the whole point. You, you tracking with me? Are you still like me a little? Whoever said that, God bless you. <laughs> Brett, you're my man, you're my man, Bartlett. Got your back, dude. So if the stats, you know, I'm. I'm going to roll with statistics here. I know they're a little subjective, but if we say roughly 90%, 95% of all giving in churches stays here in the U.S., where there's only about 5% of the world's population, then that means the 5% that doesn't stay in the U.S. goes out, and it's typically sent so that Americans can go to some already highly evangelized country, then there's just not much going out to reach peoples that nobody's reaching. And, you know, when Pastor Hedges gets up here and talks about Bibles for these people that don't have Bibles, I mean, you, you really need to be praying about that. Okay, so, serving as, like I said before, serving as a foreign missionary is a serious commitment. Your notes, serious commitment. So, because it's a serious commitment, there's serious rewards associated with it if you're willing to step up to the plate. We looked at Matthew 19 yesterday. The 12 disciples have a unique reward system, sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Then it goes on in verse 29 of Matthew 19, and everyone, the general application, that's forsaken houses, brethren, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands for my namesake, has special rewards coming. Right? And so... That must mean the job is tougher. 
you get special rewards. It must be because you did extra work. It's harder. So I put this long sentence in your notes. Regardless of the possibilities of the cases where God will call a man to serve where there is an existing witness. One thing's for sure. God will call men to leave their homes and go and witness for Jesus Christ in a foreign land if there's no existing gospel witness there. Can I get a witness? Come on. You can go and join somebody else and be a part of their team, for sure. That's fine. That's cool. But y'all, hear my heart, man. We are, we are near the end of time. And we have one job to do. You got one shot. Man, make it count. Okay, let's go to the next category. And that would be missionary results. Again, based on some of my personal observations, and I think the scripture witness as well. John 15 and verse 16 is one of the key pillar verses that we talk about in the philosophy of discipleship and the idea that Jesus called us and ordained us that we would go and bring forth fruit and what? That our fruit would remain. And so that's why we make disciples, that our fruit will remain and they will make fruit and that it will remain. And with this multiplicative, which is hard to say on New Year's morning, principle that we can reach the world more effectively. And so, like I referred to some of the sad stories yesterday, far too frequently we have good, godly, focused, hardworking, dedicated men that serve a significant portion of their lives and finish their time in a specific mission field country with little or no lasting fruit after their departure. So in our ministry in Albania, we started our second church in the port city of Duras. And to make a long story short, we sent our best guy, one of our deacons, to go be the pastor to start this church in Duras. And the circumstances that dictated selecting Duras were many, but among them, a predominant one was this, that there was an existing American missionary that was working in the city of Duras, and he wasn't, well, he was there a year or two or three maybe at the most, not too long, maybe a couple years, and he had grabbed a handful of people that got saved, and they were meeting in his home, and they had the nucleus of a church, and for whatever reason, he determined he was not satisfied and felt like he needed to leave and go back to his home church and take a position on the staff of his sending church. And so he left the work in Duras and he came to us and he said, man, I feel really bad because I've had these baby Christians and they're meeting in my house and I feel like I need to leave, but would you have anybody that would care for them and shepherd them and take over this work? And so we prayed about it and thought that that's what the Lord would have us to do. And the man in our church said, okay. And so we went and we started that work. It was started on our part. It was, we participated in it based on the fact that this American decided to leave and, and his fruit was not ready. And then so we took over and I, I told our guy, his name is Sazan. I told Sazan that you need to be ready that these 10 people that are meeting with the missionary might not keep meeting with you I mean, we don't know them. I hope they will, but there's a good chance that they're meeting with the missionary because he's a missionary, <laughs> because he's a foreigner and because, you know, there's hope of some other gain. And that happens, and sadly, that's exactly what happened. And God used it, and Sazana is still there, and they have their own church, and they've won a lot of people to the Lord, and they got their own thing going. But none of those original 10 are a part of what's that church now. There's another American missionary that worked in the capital city of Tirana, uh, across town from me and, and uh, independent Baptist guy is a friend of mine and he had a small work and uh, he also felt like it was time for him to go back to the States and it was a fledgling kind of a church and uh, well before he decided to leave to go back to the States he had one gal young uh, Albanian gal who was really good at English and she was his translator he never really picked up Albanian and anyway she ended up getting a scholarship to go to Pensacola Bible College or something like that, and he didn't have anybody else that spoke English, and man, he needed, 
he came to me humbly and he said, do you have anybody that could be a part? I know they'd have to leave your church and be a part of mine, but he was humble and we sent a guy, a young guy to go translate for him and to help him and be a part of his ministry. And then ultimately when it was time for him to leave, um, man, his church had dwindled down to virtually nothing. And I mean, he was broken and he met with me and he, he was weeping. He said, Jeff, I'm telling you, he said, I, I can't imagine. I'm, I've spent all these years here in Albania and I'm going home and I got nothing to show for it. I mean, that's a sad deal. You don't want to be a part of that, right? I mean, you want, you, missionary life is hard and, and you don't mind sacrificing. You don't. As long as there's fruit that remains because that energizes you. I mean, your life has to have some meaning. It has to have some significance. Okay, so go back to Ezekiel 3. Let's reread, starting in verse 5. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel, verse 6, not to many people of a strange speech and a hard language whose words thou canst not understand. Here it is again. Surely had I sent thee to them, the foreigners, check it out, they would have hearkened unto thee. Did you get that? If God is going to go to all the trouble of relocating somebody from the culture, language, people they understand into a much more difficult situation of language and culture and lifestyle, if God is doing it, surely they will hearken unto you. Are you hearing that? I think verse 6 is God's guarantee of visible fruit. Now, I think, I think what God is saying, the new international Bartel version, Ezekiel, I'm sending you to a fruitless ministry in your home. But if I sent you to a foreign country, they'd listen. Because I wouldn't bother sending you if I didn't know there were people just, just, that just needed to have somebody show up and say so, right? Okay, let's go back to Jonah. Now, you know, we give Jonah a lot of flack, man. You know, we like to ride Jonah like... He was, kind of a, he was kind of a crummy missionary. He was whining, complaining, running from God and all that stuff. I defy you to find a greater revival in the Bible than in Nineveh. Lousy preacher, Jonah. 40 days, God's going to wipe you out. Drops the mic, I'm out. <laughs> That's Jonah. But you track the story in Jonah chapter 3... And God had to tell Jonah twice before he did it, go to Nineveh, that wicked city, and, pre and preach the preaching that I bid thee. Then Jonah gives the message we make fun of. How do you know that's not what God bid him to say? How do you know? All he had to do was show up and open his mouth. And as much as we read into it that it didn't seem like he was very good at it, man, he sure got results, didn't he? Because God knew the Ninevites just needed somebody to say something to them, right? I, I, listen, did I say I'm not the Holy Spirit? Did I, I think I said that. Okay. I, write that down. I get it. There are some fields. The soil is very, very hard. I know a family that the parents lived their whole lives, like 40 years, in a remote jungle area of Brazil, I, I don't remember exactly where, tilling the soil with no converts. Jeff, what do you say about that? Well, I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. But the story doesn't end there because the son of the family continued with that tribal people and saw a great revival. So I'm not saying, you know, if you're not just knocking the doors down with converts that you're not in God's, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Ezekiel hears from the Lord that if the Lord's going to bother to call, there's going to be some fruit. And I think that's something to consider. It doesn't have to be a thousand. It may be a handful. How many would make it? What do you need to hear from James Fife? 
that God's doing something. Well, I was pretty jazzed to hear what he said last night, and eventually there's going to be people in heaven with us. I know that's going to happen. In our ministry in Albania, for whatever reason, but I, we just never had missionary partners. And so, you know, I, I, was, I was the lone American. It was just me and the boys, you know, my guys that I was training. Okay, the first time I left Albania for a brief visit back to the States, I had to show off my new wife. I had been in Albania for two years and went back to show the people in Alabama that I could really find a girl. And, okay, so our church, I mean, the converts in our church were, the oldest was two years old in the Lord. Well, we left the ministry with them. I gave them some guidance. Do the best you can, you know. And they did fine. They did well. And every time I ever took an absence from our ministry there, we just, the Albanians just rolled with it. I mean, discipleship is all part of what we do. And I've never, ha ever once had to call some other foreign missionary to come and fill in for me while I wasn't there. That's just never been in the plan. And it's sad when that happens over and over again. Okay, let's get to the fifth point, uh, point number five, the third one today, counting the cost, and go through this briefly. I do want to take a few minutes at the end and play a short video clip for you that I think will be something that will encourage you. Okay, so counting the cost is important in any worthwhile endeavor, right? I mean, certainly worldwide evangelism. So Luke 14, 26 through 33 is the text we're going to remind ourselves of. So Luke 14, 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Hard statement. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first, here's the phrase, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, and that behold it, begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Ha, ha, ha. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh again against him with 20,000 or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. So we got to count the cost. So here's some cost to count. Hating his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, hating his family, in other, wor in other words, literally means loving Jesus more. Obviously, God is not calling you to hate your family. You know this. You know the parallel passages in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus phrases it differently for clarity. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So if you love human relationships more than you love the Lord, then you're falling a little short. So count, part of counting the cost is, are you willing to demonstrate your love for the Lord more than your love for even your family or your home or your desire to stay home? Count this cost out of verse 27, bearing his cross. So bearing his cross or willing to die if necessary. That may just mean dying to your selfish desires. It may mean dying to your preferences and a lot of the things that you've enjoyed. It may mean dying. It did in the end of book of Hebrews chapter 11. Count this cost from verses 28 to 30. Building a tower and not finishing it leads to others mocking. Just as too often happens when a brother leaves the USA to serve the Lord overseas only to quit and return home and be a cause of mocking toward the Lord Jesus. So the Albania story is 1997. The country erupted in civil war. It erupted in civil war because the government was in cahoots with the mafia and they set up a pyramid investment scheme, a Ponzi scheme, and when they did that, they raped the people of all their wealth, lying to them, telling them that they could multiply their money multi, you know, multiple times over, and the people didn't know, and they put all their wealth in. They took the cash and ran like they always do in a Ponzi scheme. When you're about 
when you're poor and you got nothing left and nowhere to live and they stole everything you got, you're like the lepers outside the city in Syria and you're like, well, we're going to die if we stay, we're going to die if we go, we might as well go kill somebody anyway. So the Albanians just decided, let's just take somebody with us. I mean, they stole everything from us anyway and we erupted in civil war. All the expats were evacuated. All the American missionary, uh, Marines came to all the homes of all the American citizens and evacuated them, put them on helicopters and sent them out to an aircraft carrier in the Adriatic Sea. All the, all the different countries had their militaries evacuate the, the personnel of that country. It was a very, very dangerous place to be. And when all that happened, it just so happened that my family was in the United States. This was March of 1997. We were raising some support, and we were scheduled to return in May of 97. I don't want to tell too much of the story, but it goes like this. By the time it came time, got time to return in May, the United States State Department still had a ban. No Americans are to go to Albania. It's far too dangerous. But that's our home. That's our ministry. That's our family. Those are the people that we love. And we said, we're going anyway. So planes still flew in. We were able to go. And we went back in. And when we went back in, what we found was that there was virtually no foreigners in the country. There was a handful of us, but virtually nobody. And so I was one of almost no other foreign missionaries in the country. And the other missionary, and I don't blame them for this, by the way. It was real life-threatening. I'm not blaming them. I'm just, I'm just giving you a story that's a truthful story. So the missionaries typically would have told their congregations, young fledgling congregations, something like this. This is very dangerous. Our government is evacuating us. So, you know, do the best you can. We'll see you later. In other words, what they were saying, maybe in not so many words, was... They, they did say this in so many words. This, this is a good opportunity for you to trust the Lord. Okay, so back up and remember where I said, they may be poor. They may not have all the conveniences you have. They ain't stupid. They, they can do math. They figured it out. Okay, wait a minute, let me see. We trust the Lord. You trust the Marines. Fearless leader. Again, I'm not blaming the missionaries. I'm not. Every man has to do what he has to do for his family. I'm just telling you, the name of Christ in those churches got a black eye that day. It got a black eye. It was sad. And many of them never returned because it was just too risky. They just couldn't bring their wife and children back. Again, I don't blame them. It's just a cost you have to count. And so the name of Christ was mocked. Because of that, they didn't count the cost ahead of time. They didn't make decisions in the light that would affect them when the darkness showed up. Amen. My wife and I already made those decisions previous to that time. We weren't present for the evacuation, but we went back in while it was still very dangerous. The new elections for the new government weren't scheduled until June. There was still... It was still raining lead in the capital city. In other words, people a lot of times were just shooting guns off in the air. And the bullets don't go into orbit. What goes up must come down. Thankfully, nobody in any of the churches I was aware of were injured. God protected the Christians. It was wonderful. Okay, let me give you your notes because I want to wrap this up. In your notes from verse 33, you must be willing to forsake all that you have. Look, th this has nothing to do with your superpower to deny yourself. It's just God. If he calls you and chooses you and sends you, you count the cost and that's, that's what it is. So therefore, kind of referred to this last time, the th next thing in your notes, a true missionary, and I, I, I like that phrase, a true missionary, should be recognized for such commitment. If, if he's the real deal, you ought to be proud, you ought to boast, you ought to be excited, you ought to show the proof of your love. So there's a couple of extremes you gotta be aware of. This is in your notes. The problem arises when, a foreign, when foreign missions in a church is overly glamorized or when foreign missions is overly simplified that it's made to look like just anyone can do it if they just sign up. Okay, so let's, let's clarify the, the extreme views. It's too hard 
Only the super Christians, they got an extra spiritual chromosome. Only they can do it. Or, this is easy, anybody can do it. No and no. Yes, anyone can do it if God calls you, if God empowers you, if you prepare, if you go through the progression. Yes, it's possible. But you just don't want whosoever will, like the priests of Jeroboam, showing up. Because lives can be destroyed if men who are not called and not prepared sign up for this duty. Have you ever noticed, we're not going to look at it because I'm going to stop with this, but 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 33 is that long list of all the junk Paul went through in his life and the hard stuff that he went through. Look at that list and notice. Have you ever noticed all that stuff that happened to Paul happened to him as a result of his journeying? I mean, I'm not saying that he wouldn't have had some persecutions if he stayed home, but he was on the road getting it done for the Lord, and, you know, that's a, that's a tough road, man. That was a hard thing. Paul's got some crazy experiences where he, you know, was stoned and left for dead in Acts chapter 14, and, you know, then he gets up and walks around and keeps doing ministry. I mean, then in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about how he knew a man in Christ and went up to the third heaven, and I think Paul's speaking of himself, and Paul kind of lived out the rest of his life like he had a death wish. So he, he, I think he died. I think God raised him. I think God gave him a glimpse of the third heaven, put him back on earth, and Paul's like, that's what that's all about? And he would just go for it, thinking, I hope you kill me. I know what's over there, man. That's how he lived. So he could write in Philippians 1.21 for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Okay, a friend of mine, there's a great little missionary video that's been put out. They're called Dispatches from the Front. It's called Frontline Missions if you want to look them up. And this one particular episode was written about the ministry in Albania and a particular missionary friend of mine named David Hasefluk. David's video, it's about an hour long. If you want to purchase it or something, it's worthy. Um, but he's got a little three-minute segment at the end that'll wrap up kind of what I'm trying to say. So if you can run that three-minute video, and uh, I'm done. Not long ago, I read a letter from David to a pastor who asked him to advise him about how to address the issue of missions from the pulpit. David's letter was full of grace and grit. He wrote, Let them know the incredible difficulty of leaving houses and lands for the gospel. It's easy to feel the tingly sensations of missionary surrender by listening to a well-crafted, musically powerful missionary DVD in a climate-controlled auditorium, and then hearing an impassioned sermon. But turn off the AC when you preach the sermon. Pump in the smells of body odor and strange food and cigarette smoke. Talk about depression and loneliness and pain and smog and threats and fears and danger and discomfort. Talk about there being 10 Demises that rip your heart out for every Timothy that is faithful. Talk about pouring out blood, sweat and tears and seeing the harvest come in slower than you thought it would. Talk about missionary kids struggling to adjust and forever becoming third culture people, neither being culturally American nor Timbuktuan. Missionary sacrifice is overwhelming. This isn't in the fine print. It's plastered all over the New Testament. But we fail to present this side because we don't want to sound like we're belly aching. War is hell. But also, let them know the incredible reward of doing all this for Christ's sake. Talk up the joy that was set before Christ at the cross. Talk up eternal treasure. Mention the party thrown over the one in 100 rescued from destruction. Make them jealous for God's glory. And tell them how incredibly amazing it is to see God turn on the spiritual light in a pagan's heart. How 
tear-jerkingly awesome it is to hear a sinner calling upon the name of the Lord that amidst the pagan sounds and oppressive darkness you have been sent as a light lit by the light you are there and they know you are there and he knows you are there and he is there with you always until it's all over and you go to your final sleep saying I left it all out there on the field and it was worth it all We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.